an inadvertent beginning, I guess, to our uh, proceedings this evening. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the Believe It or Not eighth live session in our There and Back Again series. Tonight, chapter eight of The Hobbit, Flies and Spiders, in which we venture into Markwood, in which, I dare say, we are cast into Markwood, and things suddenly get... Well, they get super real. This is one of the most important turning points in Bilbo's entire journey. It's one of the most important turning points in Bilbo's arc, certainly. And I cannot wait to discuss everything that lays in store for us tonight, from the dark, oppressive magic and corruption of Mirkwood all the way through the spiders to the elves. And one of the most interesting shifts in our narrative focus that we've seen to date, one of the most interesting shifts in the narrative focus, I would argue, in the entire book, we have a lot to discuss. As I promised last week, we are almost certainly going to run longer than our allotted 90 minutes this week. Let's see how it works out. We have Lauren and Sam and Kate and Robert and Becca and Emmy and Lauren here. Oh, I said Lauren twice. That's fine. Kim and Bryce and Garrett here. We have Sue with us on Twitter. We have Kim on Twitter. We have Jerrica on Twitter, who is joining us for the first time. Jerrica's handle on Twitter, Fool for a Took which I like rather a lot. There's a lot to discuss uh, this week. Drinking game, asks Robert immediately. Drinking game, immediately? That's risky. If you start the drinking game now, you may not live to see the end of the live session. I have fine folks with me here on Twitter using the hashtag SW again, S-W-A-G-A-I-N. I have wonderful folks here in the Discord chat. Um, Kate says, thanks heaven, Al- thank heavens. Excuse me, Alistair is running late. I feel like a hobbit who left the house without handkerchiefs. So do I, a little, Kate. It has been a week of technical woe here in the Common Room Radio Studio, where I'm currently recording. We have been beset this week, ever since our wildly successful live broadcast, I guess, on Tuesday evening. It has been a tale of of woe and technical, technical hurdles that have yet comprehensively to be overcome but i am glad to be with you here this evening and i'm glad that everything seems to be working as well as it is let's hope that continues shall we let's get into our discussion then of chapter eight though i guess we should frame this a little bit i received yesterday on twitter a fascinating pair of questions i suppose from um from the wonderful Carla in Portugal, who asks simply this. A question for Paper Bullets, re back again, she asks. Is there a logical reason why I enjoyed chapters five and chapter eight more than the rest of the book? Is there something that connects them? Do they feel more like Lord of the Rings? Did anyone else experience this? Carla, I don't think she'll mind me saying here in the live session, has been struggling a little with The Hobbit. And I know that a few of you have been, that those of you who are perhaps more acquainted, more familiar with The Lord of the Rings have been... I've been finding it difficult to engage meaningfully with The Hobbit, particularly in its earliest movements. And I don't think at all that it is a coincidence that Chapter 5, Riddles in the Dark, and Chapter 8, Flies and Spiders, have been to date perhaps the most engaging. Because we're seeing here a very different kind of tone and texture from the professor. What we're seeing in these chapters is a move away from from juvenile whimsy. That's juvenile, not used in any kind of of dismissive or derogatory uh, context, I assure you. But we're seeing a move away from that kind of, of childhood story to something more mature, 
And certainly by the time that we hit Flies and Spiders in the original version of The Hobbit, this is our first introduction to this more mature tone and style. Chapter 5, as we discussed at the time, was extensively rewritten as a prelude, as a precursor to The Lord of the Rings. Once Tolkien had figured out what it was that he wanted to do for the long-awaited sequel to The Hobbit, he went back and rewrote Chapter 5 and made it more adult, made it darker always been like this pretty much has stood untouched since the first draft or i guess not the first draft but the first published version of the hobbit and what we see here is a real shift toward dark themes a shift toward otherworldly menace and malevolence we're seeing most profoundly a shift toward fairy and those of you who were with me in the very first session of there and back again will remember our discussion of tolkien's famous essay on fairy stories in which he discussed the power and the virtue and the magnitude of fairy tales. In Tolkien's definition, fairy tales are not tales about fairy. They are not tales about this otherworldly realm. They are usually tales of mortals who are tangled up in the fairy realm. They are tales of mortals who travel through standing stones or who venture into the forest, who cross some kind of threshold into the realm of fairy. We are going to see that pulled out in this chapter in a way that, that we have not seen previously. Even our, our fleeting visits with Fairy, even our time spent at Rivendell, felt very different to the kind of adventures, the kind of encounters that we're going to have here in Mirkwood. I think it is completely fair and legitimate to say that Chapter 8 of The Hobbit is the most fairy tale story that Tolkien ever wrote. This is the maximum amount of fairy, arguably, that we will ever get, even... Yeah, even by the time we get to, to Lothlorien in The Lord of the Rings, we're not going to see quite this kind of classic fairy tale narrative. Tracking that and understanding the pressures that that applies, understanding what it is that the, this, this chapter accomplishes, what it does for Bilbo, of course, most significantly, but also for the dwarves too, and for our understanding of Tolkien's secondary creation. Understanding these things allows us to connect Tolkien's secondary creation and connect, honestly, all of modern fantasy, much of which, most of which, basically all of which is in some sense derivative of Tolkien. It allows us to connect all of modern fantasy back to this medieval tradition of fairy stories, this much, much older kind of narrative. And though it is older, to return to Carla's question, I think it also feels more contemporary. Fantasy has kept up with this kind of tonality and this kind of texture. Fantasy as genre has, has maintained this tonality, whereas the somewhat juvenile, somewhat Victorian sense of, of the earlier chapters has been left behind. We don't write fiction for children the way that Tolkien wrote fiction for children anymore. Now we're doing something generally more ambitious, something generally more bleak. Only left children's fiction, genuine fiction for children, in a somewhat anemic and, and thin and meager and oftentimes superficial place. Tolkien believed, of course, that darkness and threat and danger could enrich children, could make them better, could make them more capable of dealing with the, the upsets and the confrontations and the conflicts of adult life, of 
what was to him the modern world. Nowadays, when we think of children's literature, we generally think of some Disneyfied, soft-edged, pastel-colored vision of the world where everything is perfect and everything is restored to absolute justice by the last page. We've moved this sense of danger and darkness and despair into YA fiction, which is not, of course, a kind of storytelling that Tolkien would have recognized, though I do think it is a kind of storytelling with which Tolkien would have been broadly sympathetic. I think he would have appreciated the push toward YA fiction for exactly the reason that I just enumerated, that darkness and threat and danger can can instill a wisdom, as he says, occasionally a wisdom on, on callow and lumpen youth, I think is the quote. Um, I think he would have been appreciative of the push to modern YA, if not in particular regard to its its somewhat derivative qualities, that, that we have established dystopian YA fiction, oftentimes with a female heroine, um, that we have established this as a new template, and it has become so dominant that it is, in a sense, the only template that we're engaging with anymore. But that will pass. We will move into a new fallow period for a, a new a new period of fertility, rather, for this kind of storytelling, this kind of narrative. And Tolkien, I think, would very much have approved of that. Death of Disney, build Tolkien land, says Robert Hickok. I mean, I think there is a value to there's a value to Disney, particularly modern Disney, which is not, of course, the Disney of, of the, the mid-20th century. Modern Disney at least understands that there is a variety of, of texture that we can apply to narratives aimed at children and has been, I think, very quietly much more progressive, very quietly much more ambitious than it would otherwise be. I think that once we arrive at the Disney renaissance of the early 90s, we're beginning to see a push toward real narrative. We're beginning to see a push toward real storytelling. And, and those of you who perhaps have not followed me to other podcasts, those of you who perhaps only listen to my discussions of Tolkien or only to my seminars may not have heard me waps, wax rhapsodical excuse me, about the latest Disney offering, Moana, which is... I genuinely believe one of the most important and progressive and sophisticated and thoughtful narratives that we have seen from, from Disney, from any major animated publishing company, any, any major animated movie studio for a long, long while. And Moana is also, I would argue, something with which Tolkien would have been in complete accord. I think he would have recognized a goodness and a truth and a purity to the heart of that story and, and, well, maybe someday I'll do a whole Moana as Tolkien lecture. We can discuss that. Yes, yes. Let's see. <laughs> and of course, we're already talking about uh, already talking about Hobbiton in New Zealand. Some fine day we will all make that journey. Yes, and we're talking too about the Acromantulas, and we're talking about Aragog, and we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about uh, all of the great delights that we see here in Mirkwood and their connections with the. Hmm, with the secondary creation of J.K. Rowling, with the work that she did in the Harry Potter universe, I think perhaps tonight is not the time to to talk about that specifically. Um, I have a lot to say about J.K. Rowling and and Tolkien, but perhaps that had better wait for a bonus lecture of some kind. Yes, good, good. Yes, and as a few of you are pointing out, uh, I did analysis of all of the. Uh, all of the uh, Pixar movies that were extant at the time, I think up to Brave as a part of the podcast series, The Story Wonk Sessions with Lonnie Diane Rich, who is, of course, brilliant and insightful, looking at the building blocks, the narrative building blocks of all of the Pixar movies in turn. That was a really interesting project. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
We're talking about Maui here. Yes, uh, Sarah Thomas says, I would be very careful to discuss the story of Maui through Tolkien. Maui is very important to Polynesian culture. No, sure, though. Mm, okay, to tangent completely, to get completely off the track here, I think there, ha there has been a an element of discourse surrounding the movie Moana, which is at once vital and important and thoughtful and ought to be respected, but is at the same time somewhat dismissive of Moana as a secondary creation, which is simply the argument that Moana is poorly representative of real life cultures. That Moana as a movie takes elements of, of Polynesian culture and Hawaiian culture, and, and, and I'm saying Polynesian culture and Hawaiian culture as though those are simple and monolithic things. It takes elements of 50 different cultures and behaves as though they are the same thing, which is problematic, I think, from a, a modern perspective, from a perspective that that values and seeks, rightly so, diversity and representation, but stories work differently. And I think that if we see Moana as a distillation of Pacific cultures, in the same way as we would see George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones as a distillation of, of Western fantasy cultures, I think that we can see something a little more a little more full and rounded and complex in Moana itself. It is, and I genuinely believe, just a great and, and knockout movie. And the Blu-ray is coming out this week, and I will buy the Blu-ray, which is the first time that I have bought a Disney Blu-ray, let me tell you, in quite some time. If we're limiting Disney to things which actually carry the Disney label, rather than Star Wars, of course. Yes, yes. Um, and yes, if you didn't see uh, the performance at the Oscars this last week, then you should definitely check it out on YouTube. It was, it was quite remarkable. Yes. Um, <laughs> Here I am talking about Moana, the beginning of a Tolkien, the beginning of a uh, of a Tolkien seminar series. Sarah says, but Maui is an ancestor, not a fantasy. That is completely correct. Yes, you're absolutely right, Sarah. And and I do think that there are issues of mm, issues of respect, honestly, associated with that character in particular that don't perhaps radiate out to the rest of the film. I, I completely acknowledge that there is a mm, a problematic element here. But I would also argue that Moana as a story accomplishes other things, things which are still true, that as a secondary creation, Moana works. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely, yes, we'll definitely, uh, definitely start talking about Moana another time. Yeah. Okay, let's get to it. Um, all of which is to say, Carla, I should say that, that yes, the reason that the chapters five and eight, I think, resonate with readers, particularly new readers of The Hobbit, the most is that they are the most adult. They are the most confident. These are the spots in the narrative to date. And the book will, as I've said before, rise to meet us as we progress along this path. The book will increase in sophistication and complexity and maturity as we move toward its final movement. But up to this point in the narrative, these are the most assured and confident and, yes, adult chapters. That allows us to be engaged by Tolkien's secondary creation a little more fully than we are when we're dealing with, let's say, the trolls who stress and flex Tolkien's creation by virtue of their compromise, by virtue of their desire to speak directly to that juvenile audience. I think that we're seeing something, we're seeing something a little different. We're seeing a, a different focus, a different tension, and certainly, as I've said before, a different texture and tonality in these chapters. That's true of Riddles in the Dark. It is absolutely true of Flies and Spiders, and true, too, of the back half of the book. This is our... Um, 
Yes, good, good. This is our um, seventh live session for The Hobbit. The first live session was, of course, on, on fairy stories. So we are now past the halfway point. This is session seven. We have five sessions after this before we're done with The Hobbit entirely, or at least before we're done with the text of The Hobbit. As has become clear, I'm probably going to have to add a couple of extra lectures before we get to The Fellowship of the Ring. We will see how that all works out. This, though, is emblematic of the back half of the book. So with all of that said, let's push into our first reading tonight, because, guys, I have a lot of slides to cover tonight. And we begin with the very first passage in this chapter. We begin with our introduction to Mirkwood. They walked in single file. The entrance to the path was like a sort of arch, leading into a gloomy tunnel made by two great trees that leant together, too old and strangled with ivy and hung with lichen to bear more than a few blackened leaves. The path itself was narrow and wound in and out among the trunks. Soon the light at the gate was like a little bright hole far behind, and the quiet was so deep that their feet seemed to thump along while all the trees leaned over them and listened. As their eyes became used to the dimness, they could see a little way to either side in a sort of darkened green glimmer. Occasionally a slender beam of sun that had the luck to slip in <coughs> excuse me, that had the luck to slip in through some opening in the leaves far above, and still more luck in not being caught in the tangled boughs and matted twigs beneath, stabbed down, thin and bright, before them. But this was seldom, and it soon ceased altogether. So what do we make of our introduction to Mirkwood here? Dry Heaving Llamas asks in the YouTube chat, Light at the gate, is this a literal gate or a metaphorical one? Never quite figured it out. I always read it as a metaphorical gate. It is not a, a literal gate. There are no gate posts and no gate itself, I would argue, but I believe that it is still a gate nonetheless in a metaphorical sense, that it is a marked threshold. And certainly as we move into Mirkwood and we leave that light behind us, reminded only of that light by these shafts of sunlight that seem to somehow elude the, well, if not malevolence of the forest, at least presence of the forest. We get the sense here in the second paragraph, occasionally a slender beam of sun had the luck to slip through some opening in the leaves far above and still more luck in not being caught in the tangled boughs and matted twigs beneath. There is a sense that the forest itself is conspiring to eliminate this light, that the forest itself, this murkwood, if you will, is conspiring to preserve darkness which is, of course, a powerful idea. And it's a powerful idea that we associate specifically with luck. And I would put a pin in that because we'll circle back around to some discussion of luck later and what luck represents and how we think of luck as a quality, how we think of luck perhaps as the possession of a particular, uh, a particular character in this story. Yeah. As Robert Hickok says here in the YouTube chat, we're at yet another entrance we have Goblin Town and Markwood. We have Shilob's Lair, of course. And for those of us who have read The Lord of the Rings, there is a powerful association between spiders and darkness. And if you have read The Silmarillion, that association is all the more powerful. These spiders are the offspring of Shilob, whom we shall meet in the Two Towers, who is herself the offspring of Ungoliant, who we shall meet in The Silmarillion. Should we ever discuss The Silmarillion? The odds are pretty good that we're going to discuss The Silmarillion, you guys. I think that the association between spiders 
and darkness is a powerful one. But we must remember that Mirkwood is not a place of evil, at least not by nature. It is a place which has been corrupted. And throughout this chapter, we get tiny suggestions that Mirkwood has not always been this way. Certainly, the trees bow low over the path. They conspire to listen to the footfall of the hobbit and, of course, the dwarves that accompany him. But they don't crowd out the path. The path stands inviolate. And we might argue, had the dwarves and Bilbo simply stayed on the path, nothing bad would actually have happened to them. Mirkwood is oppressive, and it is deceptive, but like the realm of fairy so often does, it lures, it enchants, it compels, rather than actually assaulting. It seems likely that had they simply stayed on the path, nothing bad would have happened to the dwarves. That said, this is of course not a healthy forest. There is no food here. There is no sustenance here. There is no light here. The animals have been turned to darkness themselves, and magic pervades, well, the entire landscape, as we'll discover soon enough. Yes. Dylan says, I like how the trees stab and strangle and choke, like we're already seeing monsters even before the monsters show up. Absolutely. Emmy asks, is there some kind of magic over the path? And I think that there are there are two ways of looking at that, Emmy. I think that on the one hand, the simple answer is yes, that there is a magic which preserves the sanctity, if you like, of the path itself, that, that there is presumably some kind of elven magic which, which guards the path and prevents the incursion of the darkness that, that lays to the side, this, this green glimmering darkness into which the dwarves can see but dimly. At the same time, though, I would argue that this is more metaphorical, that the incursion of the path into the forest is relatively recent. Presumably, the forest was here before the path. The path was cut through the forest. And that incursion of civilization, I think, carries with it its own weight. It carries with it its own presence and its own significance. I think that the path exists because the path has been cut and the forest arguably has not yet healed sufficiently that it might reabsorb that path. The forest is older and even in its corruption, the forest maintains a kind of, hmm, a kind of sense of itself, certainly a sense of its own ecosystem, though Tolkien himself, of course, would never have used that word, a sense of its own complicated and and multifaceted existence that the forest incorporating the trees and the animals who belong there and arguably the spiders who don't even the elves who move between the boughs that the forest has a presence and the path has hmm, has intruded upon that even if it is guarded by elvish magic yes um princess ostrich asks um, and the YouTube chat is scrolling so quickly that I'm having trouble keeping up, of course. Um, there is this notion to me that Mirkwood is in a way corrupted too with the Black River and only the shadow of light. Is there maybe something about the necromancer lurking around Mirkwood's southern borders? Yes. I mean, yes. As we will see when we discuss the quest of Erebor, Mirkwood has been corrupted, though even here within the pages of The Hobbit, in which we don't really discuss 
I guess we don't discuss its corruption per se. We discuss the fact that Mirkwood has fallen into darkness. Even Bayorn is warning us of this. Bayorn describes Mirkwood as a savage land, which, which coming from Bayorn is worth more than perhaps the dwarves really credit. Mirkwood has fallen into darkness. And we'll certainly get a different perspective on this too when we get to the elves. And there is, I think, a completely valid and fascinating topic of discussion here, which could honestly be a lecture unto itself. Tolkien's association of the, the corrupt vision of Mirkwood with fairy is fascinating, is, is really informative, I think, because it compels us to question the nature of fairy. Fairy, at least in Tolkien's secondary creation and in much of his reading, in, in many of the, the older texts which inspired him, is the natural state of the world, that, that fairy is wild and terrible and horrible and glorious and beautiful and seductive and magical. It is all of these things. But that the modern world has somehow sanitized fairy, that, that civilization itself, that society has sanitized fairy, that we carve pockets of sanity and, and normality out of this much wilder world. But here we associate fairy with corruption. Or, I guess, that is perhaps begging the question, do we associate fairy with corruption? Are we seeing two influences here within Mirkwood? One, the spreading darkness of a rising evil, and the other, the realm of fairy itself. I think we might be able to distill two separate perspectives on Mirkwood, even now, even in its corrupted state, as we move through it. These are, of course, fascinating questions. Yes, yes. Kim asks, is this because Mirkwood didn't have a shepherd? Is that what Ents are? Um, yes, possibly, possibly. Though, hmm, I'm reminded of Treebeard's comment uh, in The Two Towers, of course, the, the Ent that we will meet, the, the shepherd of the forest that we will meet in The Two Towers. He says, of course, that he is not really on anyone's side because no one is entirely on his side. And I feel as though Mirkwood is not on anyone's side. It is being abused, it is being corrupted, but the forest itself as a presence, and presumably the individual component elements of that presence, are at the very best indifferent to the quests of dwarves and even the desires of wizards and, and the great and the good. Yes. Let me see here, catch up with the YouTube chat. Um, Yes, we're going to talk about the elves, of course, as we as we get there. Absolutely, yes. Um, definitely the necromancer. We're crediting the necromancer with this corruption. Yes, which is, I think, completely valid, though. Um, yes. Um, ambiguously valid, I, I, I would say, within the pages of The Hobbit. It is because we have to remember Mirkwood's place within the wild. Here we are on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains. Here we are in the wild. Mirkwood, even at its best, even at its most benevolent, is not like the forests in which Bilbo walked back near the Shire, back in the Shire. This is not a place of comfort and civility. This is still very much the wild. So, even were Mirkwood to be restored, if it were to be cleansed and purged of the necromancer's fell influence, it would still be, capital W, wild. 
And that is not necessarily a, a terribly comfortable place. Yeah. Dry Heaving Lama says, so the forest is effectively amoral, not evil, not good, just there and an obstacle to be mastered. I would agree with you, except for that last part, that it is not an obstacle to be mastered. I mean, from the perspective of the dwarves and the hobbit, absolutely. But from the perspective of the forest, no, it simply is. It doesn't serve to be an impediment. It doesn't seek to be in opposition to the forces of civility, though hmm, I guess there is an interesting question there. How do the forces of the forces of, of course, the wild is not unified enough to have forces. How do the representatives of the wild seek to perpetuate the virtues and values of the wild? Does Bayorn stand in opposition to civilization? Do the eagles? Maybe to a degree, though the wild is really about purity of purpose and essence. And of course, while we're passing through the wild, we will effectively move past the wild. We will return to civilization and chapter after next, I guess. We're getting pretty close to that. Yes, yes. Uh, Death or Glory Toad on Twitter says, Fairy is a form to take on evil, to engage it with magic, sword, and victory, necessary in a world where evil seems everywhere. Hmm. Fairy as a means of battling evil is interesting. Because it may be argued that evil does not reside in fairy, but we must often cross through fairy to get to the place where we can oppose evil truly. Hmm. Let's put a, a pin, an, an affectionate and loving pin in that idea until we return to it in The Lord of the Rings, I think. Yes. Good. Um, Jennifer says, Alistair, does that mean you don't think the forest has malintent? I always got that vibe. I think that it does, but I think that arguably that is a part of its corruption. I think that... Hmm, what is the best example of this, I suppose, today? We, we will, of course, have so many other examples of this by the time that we get to the Lord of the Rings that, that I'm almost loath to, to comment too specifically on this. But I guess we can talk about the crossing of the Misty Mountains, that while crossing the, Minti, the, the Misty Mountains, the Minty Mountains would be a wonderful thing, but the Misty Mountains, while crossing the Misty Mountains, this company is assaulted by foul weather, by stone giants, if you believe the stone giants to be literally true, by, by adversity, but there is no sense of malice there. This is simply a place where the company does not belong. And I think that, the, that Mirkwood in its truest sense, in its healthiest sense, in its most benevolent, most, hmm, most indifferent sense, I suppose, is about as good as we can get, that Mirkwood would not necessarily oppose the dwarves in quite this way. The realm of fairy is, as I said, a seductive realm. It is an enchanting realm rather than a realm given to, to direct assault and direct approach. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yes. And Jordan says the forest is a conduit of the necromancer's evil, perhaps. Yes. Yes, it certainly is. The, well, okay. Huh. Let's clarify that too, I suppose, um, since it's going to become directly relevant when we start talking about uh, both the Lonely Mountain within the context of this book and then, of course, much later, Mordor in the context of The Lord of the Rings. I do not think it is fair to say that the necromancer sets out to corrupt Mirkwood. Rather, Mirkwood is corrupted by the presence of the necromancer. And I think that those are two very different ideas. The idea that evil simply leeches out, that there is an environmental contamination associated with evil, as arguably there is an environmental 
what is the opposite of contamination? Uh, environmental purification caused by the goodness of the Shire that, that maintains and restores the land around the hobbits. I think here what we're seeing is, is that destructive and contaminative and, and toxic consequence of evil. This is going to be absolutely a recurring element in Tolkien's work throughout The Hobbit, throughout The Lord of the Rings. There is a reason that we will talk in short order about the desolation of Smaug. Yeah. Yes, Princess Ostrich is pushing hard against the, the narrative frame here. What is the necromancer even doing by now? Do we have information on that? And the answer is no. The answer is that we do not know within the bounds of The Hobbit what the necromancer is doing. We don't even really know why he is called a necromancer. That doesn't seem to be at all clear. We will get a better perspective on this when we read the quest of Erebor, and we see this entire story from, well, okay, so technically from Frodo's POV, but actually from Gandalf's POV. The appendix that deals with the quest of Erebor is basically Gandalf telling the story to Frodo and Frodo recounting it. So we're going to get a very different perspective on the quest of Erebor, the quest for the Lonely Mountain, Thorin and company heading east to recover their treasure from Smaug the dragon. But we're also going to see what is going on with the necromancer at Dol Guldur here in the southern reaches of Mirkwood and the action that Gandalf takes while he is absent from these chapters. Yeah. Good. All right. Excellent. Let's... Um, <laughs> I have missed the discussion where we brought up Candyland, but I like the riff that's going on right now in the YouTube chat. This is really rather good. Let's push on because, um, yes, I've been talking for a half an hour and I have covered so far one slide. That might be a record. Let's move on to the next, which is hot on the heels of the first. This is our account of the worsening darkness here in Mirkwood. The nights were the worst. It then became pitch dark. Not what you call pitch dark, but really pitch. So black that you, could, that you really could see nothing. Bilbo tried flapping his hand in front of his nose, but he could not see it at all. Well, perhaps it is not true to say that they could see nothing. They could see eyes. They slept all closely huddled together and took it in turns to watch, and when it was Bilbo's turn, he would see gleams in the darkness round them, and sometimes pairs of yellow or red or green eyes would stare at him from a little distance and then slowly fade and disappear and slowly shine out again in another place. And sometimes they would gleam down from the branches just above him, and that was most terrifying. But the eyes that he liked the least were horrible, pale, bulbous sort of eyes. Insect eyes, he thought, not animal eyes, only they are much too big. Although it was not yet very cold, they tried lighting watchfires at night, but they soon gave that up. It seemed to bring hundreds and hundreds of eyes all round them, though the creatures, whatever they were, were careful never to let their bodies show in the little flicker of the flames. Worse still, it brought thousands of dark grey and black moths, some nearly as big as your hand, flapping and whirring around their ears. They could not stand that, nor the huge bats, black as a top hat, either. So they gave up fires, and sat at night and dozed in the enormous, uncanny darkness. This is stunning. This is beautifully composed. This is genuinely creepy and malevolent, and I get a shiver every time I read this. This was... Uh, 
ah, this was one of the most unsettling, one of the most, to borrow Tolkien's word itself, uncanny passages that I've read in the entire book. But this too gives us a sense of what Mirkwood is, of what Mirkwood was, of what it will be, perhaps, if the necromancer's fell influence can be removed, if it can be purged. The presence of these different eyes, insect eyes, Bilbo thinks, not animal eyes, only they are much too big. It seems as though Bilbo is referring only to the eyes that he liked the least, the horrible, pale, bulbous sort of eyes. It doesn't seem as though he's describing the yellow or red or green eyes that would stare at him from a little distance, then slowly fade and disappear and shine out again in another place. The presence of the spiders is immediate here. We are tempted, particularly those of us with a knowledge of this book and a knowledge of, of Tolkien's work in general, is that the spiders are watching. But presumably these are not all spiders. The spiders do not, it would seem to me, have yellow or red or green eyes. The pale bulbous insect eyes, and of course, I see a couple of you are, are calling out right now, this calls back to Gollum deep beneath the Misty Mountains, absolutely. Gollum's pale, luminous eyes beneath the darkness of the mountains. Here, we see those eyes. We see those otherworldly, uncanny eyes. But we also see the eyes which presumably are simply associated with Mirkwood, which are simply associated with this realm of fairy. Here we are passing into another world. And it's no coincidence that fires draw the eyes and make our situation that much worse. They, they call forth the moths, they call forth the bats, they make the dwarves all the more uncomfortable because even here, the relics of civilization, the most basic relic of civilization, fire is unwanted, is unwelcome. That is a powerful and disquieting idea, an idea, again, which will be referred to, to which we will call back by the time we get to the ants in the two towers. Though I should say that Treebeard and the ants, nothing like as otherworldly and malevolent as, uh, as Mirkwood is at this point. Yeah, good. Yes. Kate says, I felt like I was walking with the party reading this passage, heading further into darkness with each sentence. Kate, that is beautifully put. That is exactly my sense as I read this passage too. But that tension, that tension which must not go overlooked, that tension between Mirkwood as a forest and Mirkwood as a place of darkness and corruption, I think it serves us to track that and to... Hmm, to consider, I suppose, the danger of fairy corrupted, though we'll engage with fairy more directly as we move toward the elves later in the chapter. Yes. Chesley says, the one thing I did not like is when it says, not like the pitch dark you've seen, I found it alienating to have the book tell me that I have never experienced anything similar. Yes, this is uh, one of the most forcible intrusions of the narrative voice, at least until the end of the chapter. At the end of the chapter, we get a remarkable intrusion of the narrative voice, which we'll discuss right at the end of tonight's session. But at this point, this is one of the more 
stark intrusions that we've had. We've had the narrative voice, and I'm saying the narrative voice to distinguish from Bilbo's voice when he's recounting the story. We have had a more narr- a more modern narrative voice intrude on the action already. We've had certain references made, certain accounts made by that narrative voice, but this is one which stands out, certainly, because usually the narrative voice will offer metaphors which are more accessible to the modern reader, modern by the time The Hobbit was published, of course, or will seek to reassure or will seek to explain. But you're right, Chesley, that this is a flat repudiation of the reader's experience. Oh, you've never seen a darkness like this. Well, maybe I have. You don't know me, book. You don't know what I've experienced. I can absolutely see why, on the one hand, that feels stark and almost almost aggressive against the reader. There's almost something there which which challenges the reader's own experience and understanding, but it also feels intrusive at this point to remind the reader that this is a book. This is alienating, I think, is exactly the word that I would use in, in the Brechtian sense. You know, this is a beat that reminds us that we are reading a book. We will do that to much greater effect, and I would argue with much greater purpose right at the end of this chapter, but here it is stark and 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 jagged and absolutely i think it it challenges our understanding of what it is that we are reading yeah good brooke says he knew his children assuming that that, that, yes what we're talking about here is is the fact that this is an intrusion of of tolkien's own narrative voice and that he is talking to his children it is true that tolkien composed the hobbit in part at least, as a story for his children specifically, that he would tell his children this story. I often feel that that is exaggerated in our understanding of what The Hobbit is. And I arrive at that conclusion because I don't really believe that Tolkien would compromise the integrity of his secondary creation simply to to communicate something directly to his children specifically. I think he was always too mindful of the weight and the power of story, particularly stories which are retold, stories which have accreted about themselves a sense of their own significance. So I'm a little hesitant to say that here when he breaks the narrative frame, he is directly addressing his children. I would be much more comfortable assuming that he is addressing children in the abstract. That works for me. That makes a lot of sense for me. But certainly it is true that that he was addressing his own children, at least in part, while while writing this. Yes. Good. Um, yes. Yes. And we're seeing a few people, a few people call that out. Yes. Good. Good. Um, <laughs> Emmy here in the YouTube chat makes what is perhaps my favorite pun of the evening. I wonder why the moths don't swarm the forest elves. Citron Alpha? Citron Alpha, you guys. If I hadn't already titled this episode, Emmy, that would be it. Good work. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Let's uh, keep pushing on here because we must we must get to the stream. And I must admit, too, for my own pun, that tonight's session was very nearly entitled Don't Cross the Stream. But it wasn't. I went with a, a more consistent version of, of our naming convention here on there and back again. But I'm, I'm rather proud of Don't Cross the Stream um, as a Ghostbusters reference. Yes. Let's, um, 
let's look at this. Yes, Aaron is saying, I feel like he is saying, imagine the worst darkness you've ever seen. This one is worse. So it's building on your experiences and not superseding them. I think it is possible to interpret it that way. But I think if we look precisely at the letter of the quote that that he is in fact uh, rejecting, he is asserting that it is true that you have never seen a darkness like this, even though it is possible, particularly in Tolkien's era, less so today, of course, with the, the lambent glow of our phone screens and our tablets and our computers and, and lights of all kinds. It is less likely today than it was at his time that you could experience absolute darkness. Yes. Let's move on to the next passage then and the stream. In this way, they were all soon on the far bank, safe across the enchanted stream. Dwalin had just scrambled out with the coiled rope on his arm, and Bomber, still grumbling, was getting ready to follow when something bad did happen. There was a flying sound of hooves on the path ahead. Out of the gloom there came suddenly the shape of a flying deer. It charged into the dwarves and bowled them over, then gathered itself for a leap. High it sprang and cleared the water with a mighty jump, but it did not reach the other side in safety. Thorin was the only one who had kept his feet and his wits. As soon as they had landed, he had bent his bow and fitted an arrow in case any hidden guardian of the boat appeared. Now he sent a swift and sure shot into the leaping beast. As it reached the further bank, it stumbled. The shadows swallowed it up, but they heard the sound of hooves quickly falter and then go still. Before they could shout in praise of the shot, however, a dreadful wail from Bilbo put all thoughts of venison out of their minds. Bumber has fallen in! Bumber is drowning! He cried. It was only too true. Bomber had only one foot on the land when the heart bore down on him and sprang over him. He had stumbled, thrusting the boat away from the bank, and then toppled back into the dark water, his hands slipping off the slimy roots at the edge while the boat span slowly off and disappeared. The direct connection here between Thorin's assault on the deer and Bomber's sudden incapacitation by the magic of the stream is far too powerful to overlook. It is, it is one of those archetypal beats, I think. The mystical deer, the magical deer, the fairy deer that you encounter in the realm of fairy. This is replicated and echoed throughout fairy stories across the centuries. There are so many different versions of something very like this exact story. This is one of the points at which Tolkien's work, Tolkien's secondary creation, will be at its most fairy tale. There's, there's very little in everything that Tolkien creates that is a fairy tale to this degree, a fairy story to this degree. But here, of course, he wields this archetypal element, this, this mythic element with great purpose. Thorin takes the shot. Bomber falls into the water and succumbs to the magic of the stream. This is, of course, the stream which uh, Beorn had warned the dwarves of. They go to all of these lengths to hurl their hooks and ropes across, to, to snare the boat, to pull it back, to then use another hook and another rope to pass back across the stream. This is resourceful. This is the dwarves absolutely overcoming a legitimate challenge on, the, on their path to adventure. But ultimately, Thorin's desire to strike the deer, and, and we have to question the, the root of that desire, there is contained within this 
a powerful sense of fairy and a powerful sense of the way that fairy responds to intrusion, the way that fairy responds to violence. Thorin takes the shot, Bomber falls into the water. It's mm, far too close to be accidental. Good, good. Let's uh, push on to the next slide where we see the consequence of this as they carry the sleeping Bomber through the rest of Mirkwood. This is the passage. Still Bomber slept and they grew very weary. At times they heard disquieting laughter. Sometimes there was singing in the distance too. The laughter was the laughter of fair voices, not of goblins, and the singing was beautiful. But it sounded eerie and strange, and they were not comforted. Rather, they hurried on from those parts with what strength they had left. Two days later, they found their path going downward, and before long they were in a valley filled almost entirely with a mighty growth of oaks. Is there no end to this accursed forest, said Thorin. Somebody must climb a tree and see if he can get his head above the roof and have a look around. The only way is to choose the tallest tree that overhangs the path. It didn't. It don't connect, I should say, says here in the YouTube chat. Maybe Thorin was tired of feeling insignificant and frightened of the forest, so wanted to show his power over a weaker being. Wow, I hope that isn't true. I truly hope that isn't true, it don't connect. I mean, it may be, but I truly hope that it isn't, because that would be really bad. Seeking to dominate lesser forms of life in order to preserve or accentuate or emphasize one's own power is the truest path to evil and darkness in Tolkien's work. So arguably that may be true. I, I, I genuinely hope it isn't. I hope that this springs from a more um, charitable impulse from Thorin, that what he really wants to do is provide food and sustenance and nourishment for his companions. But wow, not so sure about that at all. Yeah, yeah. Good. Good. The laughter then. Um, oh, and Dylan the Joel agrees with it. Don't connect. That's, yes. But I mean, perhaps you're certainly not wrong. You're certainly, um, this, is, this is not an invalid uh, interpretation. But yes, it is a disquieting one nonetheless. Yes. Um, so here we see, of course, this further progression into fairy. We get distant, disquieting laughter, distant singing. And it isn't evil. It isn't malevolent. It is beautiful. And somehow that makes it worse. That is perhaps the best encapsulation of fairy that I have ever read in my life. Eerie and strange, and they were not comforted. That is absolutely what fairy is, because fairy is not a realm in which we belong. Fairy is not our home. We belong in the mortal mundane world, and the intrusion into fairy always, but always, but always comes at a great cost. And that is true even within this fantastical, this fantastical context, even within the context of Tolkien's secondary creation. Yes, we're dealing with, with dwarves and we're dealing with the Hobbit and, and Bilbo's carrying a magic sword and hey, so is Thorin, come to that. But this is still fairy. This is still different. This is otherworldly in the sense that it is another world. It is not within the bounds of their conventional understanding. And we certainly talked about this a little as we, we crossed the Misty Mountains and entered the wild. I think it was at the very beginning of last week's session that we talked about Bilbo's 
inability to process the wild because he is still constrained by the West. He is still constrained by his awfully civilized and, and comfortable worldview. He doesn't understand the glory of the eagle's flight because it exists outside of his own understanding, if not anymore, his own actual experience, of course. Here we're seeing another version of that, though it's even more profound and, in its way, even more treacherously subtle. It is all but impossible for Thorin and the other dwarves to understand Mirkwood because Mirkwood is not within the bounds of their experience. And this is, too, to harken back to the point that we were discussing right at the beginning of tonight's session, this, I think, is one of the reasons why Chapter 8 stands out as a major turning point for those of us who are reading The Hobbit for the first time. Chapter 8, in many different ways, represents a point at which the narrative begins to draw on its own established canonicity. We call back to previous events throughout this chapter, and we do so starkly in the context of, of Bilbo, for example, waking uh, to find the spider binding his legs. It's awfully similar to Bilbo waking in the goblin tunnels deep beneath the Misty Mountains. That leads, of course, to his confrontation with Gollum. In this instance, it leads to a very different kind of confrontation, which still springs from that same courageous Turkish impulse within Bilbo. Here we're starting to leverage the story that we have told thus far. This is, right slap bang in the middle of the book, our technical second act turning point. We can make, hmm, well, we can draw that line really in a number of different places. I, I think I'm fairly confident I know where I would draw that line. I would draw that line with poetry, but... We'll get to that in due course. But this is a turning point within the frame of the entire novel. This is the point at which the second act inverts. This is something that second acts often do. Second acts will generally run longer than first and third acts. And right there in the middle, you will have a pivot point. You will have the point at which the story stops expanding and begins instead to contract. It begins to conserve its, its narrative momentum. That's common throughout stories, throughout myths, throughout fairy tales. There's that point of inflection at which we suddenly begin to, to draw in toward our climax, to draw in toward our conclusion. And it may well be argued that, at least in terms of Bilbo's personal narrative, that takes place within this chapter. Again, you can draw your lines there. Yes. Good. Robert says, uh, another Tolkien religion note, his writing refers back and forth to other parts of his writing as he would have looked at scripture. What better way to write? Robert, that is a beautiful pull. Of course, the intertextuality of Tolkien's work. Well, okay. I, I, I do not think that he is drawing exclusively on scripture. Tolkien was, of course, a medievalist. He was an antiquarian. I mean, he would have understood the desire to tell and to retell and to adapt and to, to reformulate stories. He would have understood that a story is not a single pinned, preserved version of a tale, but is instead the living, breathing amalgamation of all the different versions of that tale. But you're absolutely right in that it is also true of scripture, that, that Tolkien's response to... <laughs> I was going to say that his response to scripture would have been very much like his response to, to stories. That is true. Also, the inverse is true. I think that his response to stories would have been very much like his response to scripture. And of course, his pursuit of his own secondary creation would have spoken to that same impulse too. Yes, I think that's a, that's a, really, great, uh, that's a really great pull. Yes. Good. 
Good. Okay. Um, yes, excellent. The elves' reality of Mirkwood is different because it's in fairy as opposed to the reality of the dwarves, ask, asks Kim Clark uh, on Twitter. Yes, yes, yes. Because while the dwarves and the uh, the dwarves and the hobbits and men ultimately do not truly belong in the realm of fairy, elves do. We must remember, as we've discussed before, that that Tolkien actually used the word fairy throughout the first drafts of the Hobbit. Elves were fairies. Elf and fairy are synonymous words. They mean exactly and literally the same thing. Way back at the beginning of the Hobbit, when we describe the rumor that some took ancestor once took a fairy wife, they mean an elf. They are talking specifically about elves, not a kind of elf, not a being similar to an elf, and certainly not a little diaphanous pixie dust creature like Tinkerbell who lives out in the far forest. No, they're talking about elves. The realm of fairy is populated by fairies. By fairies, we mean elves. We could also refer to the realm of fairy within Tolkien's work in particular as the realm of elves. Not Rivendell, not high elves, but here we see wilder elves. Here we see wood elves. We'll talk about that too as we uh, as we move forward. Yeah, good. Okay, let's push on to our next um, to our next slide in which Bomber suddenly wakes. He woke up suddenly and sat up scratching his head. He could not make out where he was at all, nor why he felt so hungry, for he had forgotten everything that had happened since they started their journey that May morning long ago. The last thing that he remembered was the party at the Hobbit's house, and they had great difficulty in making him believe their tale of all the many adventures they had had since. When he heard there was nothing to eat, he sat down and wept, for he felt very weak and wobbly in the legs. Why did I ever wake up? he cried. I was having such beautiful dreams. I dreamed I was walking in the forest rather like this one, only lit with torches on the trees and lamps swinging from the branches and fires burning on the ground. There was a great feast going on, going on forever. A woodland king was there with a crown of leaves and there was a merry singing. And I could not count or describe the things there were to eat and drink. He need not try, said Thorin. In fact, if you can't talk about something else, you had better be silent. We're quite annoyed enough with you as it is. If you hadn't waked up, we would have left you to your idiotic dreams in the forest. You're no joke to carry, even after weeks of short commons. Uh, short commons, as Dry Heaving Llamas is asking here in the, uh, in the YouTube chat. Yes, does mean short rations. Absolutely. Yes. Um, this is fascinating in two distinct senses. The first is the consequence of the magic of the Black Stream, that yes, Bomber fell into a deep sleep, but he also lost all of his memories of this quest. His memories begin now with the unexpected party back at Bilbo's back in May, many, many weeks beforehand. But in return, he is granted a vision of fairy. And we know that this is a vision of fairy because well, no spoilers, we're going to see this feast by the end of the chapter. We're going to catch at least a glimpse of this feast. We catch it on the very next page, in fact. Bomber has been given a vision of something. He has arguably entered more fully into fairy in his dream state than he has in his physical state. 
when we're talking about the the discontinuity, when we're talking about the the incompatibility, when we're talking about the dissonance between the mundane and the fairy, when we're talking about, in a broader sense, the, the dissonance between the West and the wild, that is anchored in our personal experience. It is that that discontinuity stems from our understanding of the world around us. There is presumably nothing of our nature, nothing integral, which prevents us from entering into fairy. And when I say us, I'm including within that dwarves and hobbits too. Here though, Bomber has been put to sleep, has had his memory drift from him in exactly the same way as the boat spilled lazily out into the stream and drifted away, but has been granted instead a vision not just of otherworldly delight, but apparently a vision of his own immediate future. That's powerful, and we'll call back to this in just a few minutes, of course. And yes, to Thorin is, um, yeah, Thorin is pretty tough to like here in this passage. We should, of course, observe the fact that Thorin is the honorary ruler of his people, that he is a king without a kingdom, in effect. But it is kind of tough to like Thorin here. And this is certainly one of the arguments that we can track Thorin's darkening character through the entire story, though I feel as though we're not there yet. I feel as though this is a different kind of Thorin. And I wonder to what degree we are we are playing this as comedy. I wonder to what degree we are just supposed to find Thorin's observations funny. We're supposed to find this humorous. That that you are no joke to carry even after weeks of short commons. Yeah. As Princess Ostrich says here in the YouTube chat, I doubt he carried Bomber. No, that's very fair. I don't expect for a moment that Thorin would have carried Bomber. Yeah. Slide still up, says Lauren. I know, but we're moving on to the next slide right now. So uh, I, I beg your indulgence here on this one. Let's move on here because this brings us to our first, our first of three beats. And we should frame this a little, I suppose, by talking about the significance of threes in narrative. We rely on three beats in narrative because they contain within themselves a fundamental narrative power. In the first beat, we establish. In the second, we explore. In the third, we subvert or we heighten. We, we, we perfect. We raise toward apotheosis in the third beat. Three beats are everywhere. They are everywhere in dramatic fiction. They are everywhere in comedic fiction. They are everywhere in fairy tales and in myths and in nursery rhymes. They are all over the place. Three beats are arguably the most fundamental narrative unit that we understand as human beings. And here we get a nigh-perfect three-beat as we begin to approach the elvish feast that has been glimpsed through the trees. This is the first. And I want to look at how these three encounters with the elves raise and subvert our expectations. The smell of the roast meats was so enchanting that, without waiting to consult one another, every one of them got up and scrambled forwards into the ring with the one idea of begging for some food. No sooner had the first stepped into the clearing than all the lights went out as if by magic. Somebody kicked the fire, and it went up in rockets of glittering sparks and vanished. They were lost in a completely lightless dark, and they could not even find one another, not for a long time at any rate. 
After blundering frantically in the gloom, falling over logs, bumping crash into trees, and shouting and calling till they must have wakened everything in the forest for miles, at least they managed to gather themselves in a bundle and count themselves by touch. By that time they had, of course, quite forgotten in what direction the path lay, and they were all hopelessly lost, at least until morning. As Zach says here in the YouTube chat, don't follow the lights. Yes, don't leave the path. They're starving, so it's perhaps understandable, but all the same, now we have left the path and things are, well, things are about to get very difficult indeed. This is our first beat with the feast, this otherworldly fairy feast that we try to approach. But when we try to approach, we find that it vanishes. It vanishes in its entirety. The lights go out, and then when somebody kicks the fire and it goes up in rockets of glittering sparks, it too vanishes. It is not extinguished. It vanishes entirely. Here we see the intersection between the mundane and the magical. Here we see the intersection between our normal world and fairy. The rules are inconsistent. The rules of the mundane world do not necessarily govern the realm of fairy. Though they are, as Emmy points out here in the YouTube chat, starving at this point. It is, yeah, that's, that's fair. So this is our establishing beat with regard to the Elvish Feast. Let's move on to the next and see what happens when we try to regroup and return here. When they got to the edge of the circle of lights, they pushed Bilbo suddenly from behind. Before he had time to slip on his ring, he stumbled forward into the full blaze of the fire and torches. It was no good. Out went all the lights again, and complete darkness fell. If it had been difficult collecting themselves before, it was far worse this time. And they simply could not find the hobbit. Every time they counted themselves, it made only thirteen. They shouted and called, Bilbo Baggins! Hobbit! You dratted hobbit! Hi, hobbit! Confusticate you! Where are you? And other things of that sort. But there was no answer. They were just giving up hope when Dory stumbled across him by sheer luck. In the dark, he fell over what he thought was a log, and he found it was the hobbit curled up fast asleep. It took a deal of shaking to wake him, and when he was awake, he was not pleased at all. I was having such a lovely dream, he grumbled, all about having a most gorgeous dinner. So, in our first beat... The dwarves are scattered into darkness, and it takes time for them to find their way back. In our second beat, the dwarves are scattered into darkness, but Bilbo, who enters the ring first, is cast into a magical, enchanted sleep, much like Bomber. Indeed, the dwarves themselves call out how it is just like Bomber. Bilbo, too, dreams of the feast, which is another indication that the feast is not is not some some abstract wish of Bombers, but is instead a, a partially prophetic vision that they are seeing the realm of fairy. So this is a classic three beat. The first beat establishes, the second, excuse me, the second exaggerates, the second heightens, the second raises. Let's move on to the third. After lying and listening for a while, they found they could not resist the desire to go nearer and try once more to get help. Up they got again, and this time the result was disastrous. 
The feast that they now saw was greater and more magnificent than before, and at the head of a long line of feasters sat a woodland king with a crown of leaves upon his golden hair, very much as Bomber had described the figure in his dream. The elvish folk were passing bowls from hand to hand across the fires, and some were harping and many were singing. Their gleaming hair was twined with flowers, green and white gems glinted on their collars and their belts, and their faces and their songs were filled with mirth. Loud and clear and fair were those songs, and out stepped Thorin into their midst. Dead silence fell in the middle of a word. Out went all light. The fires leaped up in black smokes. Ashes and cinders were in the eyes of the dwarves, and the wood was filled again with their clamor and their cries. Here we see the ultimate realization of this three-beat. In the first instance, they are scattered. In the second, they are scattered and Bilbo is knocked unconscious. In the third, well, in the third, as we will find out in due course, Thorin is taken. But the dwarves are also, again, still scattered. And Bilbo wakes up in a particularly unpleasant circumstance. I love the description here of the elvish feast, the the gleaming and the light and the brilliance of it all, the warmth and the security and the grandeur of it. Elves are terrific. They inspire terror, as Terry Pratchett once said. There is something within this that is beautiful and compelling and otherworldly. This is exactly what fairy is. It is seductive and enchanting and enticing and deadly. We'll move on to talk a little more about the, uh, to talk a little more about the elves in due course. Yes. Thorin killed the party, said it don't connect. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) The dreams may be minor mirrors of Erised, or maybe the guy's just like dreaming about food, says dry heaving llamas. Many mirror, many, oh, excuse me, many mirrors of Erised would be a great name for, for a new punk band. Yeah. He also says, <laughs> someone needs to freaking tie the dwarves together, put them all on leashes. Yes, this is what Thorin should have done immediately, or Gandalf perhaps before departing. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Good. Zach says these elves are stone cold, denying starving people of food and leaving them for spider food. This is, mm, that's a really interesting point. Um, To what degree do we blame the elves here? To what degree do we demand greater empathy and kindness and condescension and pity from the elves? Hmm. That's a very interesting notion because it assumes that we expect the elves to play by our rules to observe our same morality i suppose we expect elves to behave as we ourselves would behave or as we ourselves would expect people like us to behave i'm not sure that the the elven king would necessarily agree with that, particularly for dwarves. We'll get a better perspective on that toward the end. But much more importantly here, there is a distinction between fairy and the mundane. I wonder to what degree the intrusion of the outside world into this elvish feast can be recognized as anything other than an absolute assault. And we should say too, for those of you who have read the Silmarillion in particular, for those of you who are familiar with the breadth of Tolkien's work, 
just don't ever throw a party. You guys just don't ever celebrate, particularly at night. Don't throw a feast. Don't throw a banquet. Terrible things are going to happen, particularly if you are elves. Just, just don't do it. Only, you know, throw brunch. I think brunch is probably pretty safe, but definitely not nighttime feasts. Yes. Errol says these particular elves also don't like connection with other peoples. Yes. Yes. They are insular. Um, yes. I, I'm hesitant only because we will have the opportunity to talk about this uh, in 18 months when we talk about the Hobbit trilogy of movies. One of the more successful adaptational choices, I think, of the Hobbit trilogy is to properly represent the elven community here in Mirkwood as insular, as close-minded, as cut off from the peoples around them. There is a degree of explanation associated with that, which I don't find completely compelling, and I don't also find completely necessary, but it does work well enough. And I should say, too, for those of you who are perhaps only reading The Hobbit with some knowledge of The Lord of the Rings, we're going to talk about the the Elven King. We're going to talk about the King of the, the Woodland Elves here in just a little while. His name is Thranduil. He is a very minor character in in the, the Legendarium of, of Tolkien, but he is distinct in one unique way, which is that he is Legolas's father. So when we meet Legolas in The Fellowship of the Ring, this is his dad, the elven king with the the crown of leaves and gold upon his brow. This is Legolas's father. So that will become clear later. Yes, Thranduil says Princess Ostrich here in the YouTube chat. Yes, good, good. Um, yes, yes. Well, you know, we have actually a slide. Maybe it is, in fact... Um, Yes, good. Kate Matt says on Twitter, perhaps the elves disappear if they're interrupted by anyone in Mirkwood. Why would you think dwarves in Mirkwood were uh, were good news? That's a very fair point. Yes, yes. Um, okay, before we get to the elves, before we get to the elves, we must talk about... Hmm, when we were discussing Chapter 5... Um, and then again, I think when we were discussing chapter six, I talked about Bilbo's turning points. I talked about those moments which are definitive for him. Certainly one of those moments, and perhaps the most powerful of those moments, is the moment when he chooses through pity and condescension to spare Gollum's life. When he looks upon Gollum and says, no, I won't kill you, even though I could, I won't kill you because you deserve to live, because I will I will demonstrate pity for you. And and we should frame this a little too, I suppose. Pity gets a really bad rap in the modern world. Pity is oftentimes regarded as, as a negative emotion that we do not want to be pitied and we ought not to pity others for that is condescending. But like condescension, pity has a powerful function when you understand if you believe society to be somewhat more hierarchical than it is. Pity is simply that quality of, of empathy without similarity. I can empathize with you in your hardship if we are going through the same thing, if I can recognize your experience, if, if you're having a tough day, hey, I've had tough days, I know what that's like, you and I, we're similar, I can empathize with you. If you are having a tough day and I have never had a tough day, 
then I cannot empathize with you because I do not know what that is like, but I can still pity you. I can still look upon you with, with kindness. I can still say, man, that sucks. I have no idea what that is like, but it sounds pretty bad. It sounds pretty awful. I am sorry that you are suffering. That is pity. And pity is one of the great virtues, particularly in the medieval world to which Tolkien was referring throughout his secondary creation. Pity is a good and noble thing. And when we get to the Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf will talk about Bilbo's desire to, to stay his hand from pity, to preserve Gollum's life from pity. That's heroic. That's a wonderful thing. It has become somewhat devalued in the modern world. We, we do not appreciate pity. We, we barely honestly appreciate empathy, but certainly pity is more problematic. Here, though, we're seeing another one of those turning points. While, while it is true that Bilbo staying his hand and preserving Gollum's life from pity was a great and heroic moment for him, and then there was another great and heroic, or, or I guess potentially heroic moment, when Bilbo emerges from the Misty Mountains and pauses for a moment on the mountainside and says, damn it, if the dwarves are still inside, I have to go and rescue them, and then he hears their voices and doesn't actually have to go and rescue them. Well, now he has to go and rescue them. Now he has to take action. Now he has to draw his sword and use it not for light or for the thought of... of <laughs> when he draws his sword back beneath, the, uh, back beneath the Misty Mountains, he thinks for a second that, it, that even the goblins might think him fierce. In this chapter, he draws his sword and he puts it to use. It is not about perception. It is about actuality. He wields his sword in, in what? In, in fury? Well, no, not exactly. In vengeance? Well, no, not exactly. But he wields his sword in the preservation of his own life and the life of his comrades. And that is powerful. Here he is fierce. Here he is ferocious. We'll get to all of that in a moment. Yes. Yes. Um, Joe says, we really appreciate empathy. I'd like to hear more about that maybe over several weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Empathy's in the modern world, I think, a, a devalued virtue. Um, certainly, yes. It, it, it is on the sliding scale, I think, of, of pity and condescension. Yes. As Kate Matt says here on Twitter, pity is medieval for empathy. I mean, I think there is a distinction there. I think there is a, a useful distinction, but certainly if you incorporate into that statement the medieval idea of hierarchical society, if you incorporate into that the idea that that some are simply greater and some are simply lesser, which even as I say it, sounds somewhat uncomfortable and ugly and abhorrent because I am still a modern man in the modern world. I think that yes, to a degree, yes, there is a technical distinction, but you're absolutely right. Good. Good. Um, yes. Robert says, pity is definitely dirtied over time. We use it disparagingly now, but it was not always so. And I completely encourage you to to try to embrace this concept of pity, to try to, to restore some luster and grandeur and value and worth to this concept of pity. Condescension is that much more difficult because we really do live in a more 
if not a more egalitarian culture, at least a more mobile culture. We generally believe in, in, in the fluidity of our society. So condescension is difficult because condescension relies upon that fundamental idea that, no, no, I am simply better than you, but I can look down upon you with mercy and kindness and, and grace. That's tricky, honestly, in the real world for most of us, I think. And, and if it isn't tricky for you, it probably should be more tricky for you. But pity I think there is a virtue, a great virtue to pity. And perhaps what we can do best, rather than practicing pity, is to receive pity. To be pitiable is to be in a state of grace, really, to, to, to be open to the extension of that kindness, I think, is very powerful. We're getting a little off of Tolkien here and more into, into you know, moral philosophy, but that's fine. Th these are certainly compatible ideas. Yes. Try to accept pity when it is offered to you without seeing it as, as yes, yes, good. Okay, Let, let's push on because if I keep talking about this, I will be here all night. And we only have another 10 minutes, technically speaking, here before we have to wrap up. Yes, let's, as Zach says, it's sword instead of walking stick for Bilbo. Let's take a look at what he does next. Bilbo came at it before it could disappear and stuck it with his sword right in the eyes. Then it went mad and leaped and danced and flung out its legs in horrible jerks until he killed it with another stroke. And then he fell down and remembered nothing more for a long while. There was the usual dim gray light of the forest day about him when he came to his senses. The spider lay dead beside him, and his sword blade was stained black. Somehow the killing of the giant spider, all alone by himself in the dark without the help of the wizard or the dwarves or of anyone else, made a great difference to Mr. Baggins. He felt a different person, and much fiercer and bolder in spite of an empty stomach, as he wiped his sword on the grass and put it back into its sheath. I will give you a name, he said to it, and I shall call you Sting. This is enormously powerful. Hey, let me count the ways in which this is a classic Tolkien scene. Here we have a major turning point. Here we have the introduction of a new name. Here we have a, a fairy tale heroism, which becomes fully realized by the return to mundanity. What's important here is, in a sense, Bilbo putting his sword to use, but it is also Bilbo returning to himself in the aftermath of the battle and realizing that he himself has been changed. This is one of these moments where I am certain that we are hearing Bilbo's narrative voice. It is Bilbo from the future, looking back on this moment, telling us that Bilbo has changed, that he himself was transformed. Though we may as is so often the case, speculate a little about the nature of that transformation. Has Bilbo now become Bilbo Took? Is he going to forever forsake the comforts of his little hobbit hole back home and instead venture forth and slay spiders and dragons and giants and monsters of all kinds? Well, no. No, that's not who Bilbo is. But he is more courageous. He is more fierce. He believes more in his own capability. And that fundamental capability is what differentiates great heroes in the world of Tolkien. That's really an idea that we're going to have to return to in the future, I'm afraid. There's only so much that I can say about that right now without going too far down, down a rabbit hole. But yes, yes. Um, 
Yes, we're talking a little about about uh, Sting here, and this ties back to a. Uh, and <laughs> we're also talking about Black Spider Blood. Sarah Thomas says Black Spider Blood really made me queasy as a kiddo. It don't connect. Said, is it technically blood? I have no idea. I have no idea if it is blood or some other awful, awful substance. It's it's blood analog. It's blood adjacent, certainly. Um, it's super gross. Uh, like Sarah, it made me very queasy. Yes. Spider juice says it don't connect. Mm. I think I'll take blood for for its uh, its simplicity there. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. So let's talk a little about Sting and let's talk a little about um, about um, flies and spiders. Let's talk a little about the stinging fly because while Bilbo is transitioning into a more heroic mode, a more capable mode, he isn't becoming anything other than he is. He isn't becoming a warrior or a hero as Gandalf requested, as, as Gandalf would have liked to complete this, this party way back in chapter one. He is still Bilbo. He is still a hobbit. His blade is troublesome. It is a sting. It is not Orchrist. It is not goblin cleaver. It is sting. He is the troublesome fly. We'll look at that. Oh, Kate met on Twitter used the word icker, which is not a word that I really appreciate. So, I mean, yes, probably, probably spider icker, I suppose, but ugh, yes, good. Oh, not icker either, says Lauren in the YouTube chat. They don't have circulatory systems. Guys, I did not expect to go this far into this tonight. That's, that's really good. Okay. Um, yes. So Sting here is representative of of Bilbo's perspective on himself, and he has not yet lost his sense of his place in the world. He is still small. He is still troublesome. He isn't a great power. He isn't a great warrior, isn't a great hero. He hasn't named his sword, you know, Spider Cleaver. He hasn't made it, you know, Icker Drainer. He hasn't done anything of the kind. Instead, he has named it Sting, and that is completely appropriate completely yes from there though we may be convinced that bilbo drawing his sword and and using it to its intended purpose is the major turning point for bilbo in this chapter is arguably the major turning point for bilbo in this entire book i am almost convinced by that almost but for me what defines bilbo's turning point is not his use of the sword, nor even yet the naming of the sword. Hemolymph is apparently what spider juice is properly known as. Hemolymph. Thank you, Lauren, in the YouTube chat. That is a fantastic word. And as a uh, as a fan of unusual words, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of that. But yeah, not pleasant. Not a, not a pleasant word at all. Um, <laughs> giant spider hemolymph. Okay. Um, <laughs> I apologize to any arachnophobes in the audience who have had to turn off this particular podcast. Um, for me, though, it is not the wielding of the blade which transforms Bilbo, or, or is at least indicative of Bilbo's transformation. What is most indicative of Bilbo's transformation is his poetry. This is the point at which Bilbo first composes 
poetry. He does it extemporaneously. He does it to 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 taunt and to intimidate the spiders. But it is still poetry nonetheless. Bilbo ultimately, and this will come as no surprise to anyone who has read The Lord of the Rings, will become renowned for his poetry. Poet is like the first line of Bilbo's autobiography. Okay, found the one ring, maybe it's the first line, but the second line says, wrote a lot of poems. But this is the first time that Bilbo, our prosy Mr. Baggins, composes poetry, and he does so spontaneously, which speaks directly to the idea that, that prose is for mundane occupation, but poetry is for fairy. Poetry is for heroism. Let's take a look at Bilbo's poems. As simple as they are, I find these enormously compelling. The first poem is this. Old fat spider spinning in a tree. Old fat spider can't see me. Attercop, attercop, won't you stop? Stop your spinning and look for me. Old Tom Noddy, all big body. Old Tom Noddy can't spy me. Attercop, attercop, down you drop. You'll never catch me up your tree. Hear this, this spontaneous outpouring of poetry speaks to Bilbo's position within his own narrative frame, his position within his own story, his own sense of himself. Now he is a hero. Now he is poetical, I suppose. Jerrica says here on Twitter, Atacop and Tom Noddy, my new favorite insults. Yes, of course, the spiders hate being called Atacop, and no one likes being called Tom Noddy, as the narrator assures us. It's pretty great. Oh, as Bryce calls out here in the YouTube chat, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Yes, there is a somewhat familiar rhythm to to these poems, isn't there? I, I kind of like that a lot. Yes. Emmy says, if Bilbo's courageousness is Bilbo's courageousness bringing out some creativity, it takes courage to read at open mic poetry night. I think that there is something to that. I think that there is something to this newfound heroism kindling a creativity that Bilbo had not hitherto known. But at the same time, we mustn't forget the purpose of the poem. The purpose of the poem is to taunt the spiders. And it is entirely possible that prose would not have cut it here. Poetry is more powerful. This calls us back all the way to the first chapter, all the way to to the Misty Mountains Cold song, where the dwarves sing of this thing with such power and such intensity that Bilbo witnesses it. He is transported by it. He is transformed by it. Here we see, I think, a, a fractional imitation of that same impulse. Let's look at the second here. Lazy lob and crazy cob are weaving webs to wind me. I am far more sweet than other meat, but still they cannot find me. Here am I, naughty little fly. You are fat and lazy. You cannot trap me, though you try, in your cobwebs crazy. Tamara, or possibly Tamara, asks here in the YouTube chat, are they all speaking the same language here, spiders and hobbits? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the spiders speak English, or the spiders speak whatever language Bilbo speaks, which presumably is English. There are talking animals. As we've discussed before, there are talking animals throughout The Hobbit. It's a little weird. It is a fairy tale element. It is a children's story element, which will not be echoed through The Lord of the Rings. It seems very unlikely 
given our understanding of Shelob and her offspring in The Lord of the Rings, that these spiders would be chatting so conversationally in English. And of course, we will actually get... Um, Yes, ultimately, I think I didn't pull the slide, but we will get an actual conversation between the spiders later in the chapter. Yes, I mean, it, it, yes, they're talking English. It's a little hard to get past, but there they are. Yeah. But I do like the fact that Bilbo therefore gets to taunt them. Um, <laughs> rap wasn't a thing, said the Ocean Palace. Uh, yes. Whereas Chesley Smith says he should have, had a, should have had a cabinet battle with them. If anyone can direct me to a Hobbit or Lord of the Rings crossover with Hamilton on, I mean, I'm going to guess probably on Tumblr, then please do, because I would like that. Yeah, Kate says, except Shelob totally talks. Shelob does talk, you're, you're right, but not in the same conversational mode. It is difficult to imagine Shelob talking as these spiders talk to each other. We're a little more toward the troll side of things than we are the, the Shilob or Ungoliant side of things. Yes. Yes. Good. Yes. Excellent. Um, gosh, we really are running late now and I must, I must, I must wrap up. Uh, let's, yes, let's push on to the next slide then because we have other things to discuss, including Bilbo's greatest moment of heroism. Here it is. This is after Bilbo has returned to basically uh, retrieve the dwarves. Go on, go on, he shouted. I will do the stinging. And he did. He darted backwards and forwards, slashing at spider threads, hacking at their legs and stabbing at their fat bodies if they came too near. The spiders swelled with rage and spluttered and frothed and hissed out horrible curses, but they had become mortally afraid of sting and dared not come very near now that it had come back. So cursed as they would, their prey moved slowly but steadily away. It was a most terrible business and seemed to take hours. But at last, just when Bilbo felt he could not lift his hand for a single stroke more, the spider suddenly gave it up and followed them no more, but went back, disappointed, to their dark colony. The dwarves then noticed they had come to the edge of a ring where elf fires had been. Whether it was one of those they had seen the night before, they could not tell but it seemed that some good magic lingered in such spots where the spiders, which the spiders did not like. At any rate, here the light was greener and the boughs less thick and threatening, and they had a chance to rest and draw breath. Here we see the influence of the elves, the influence of hmm, a benevolent integration with fairy and with nature right here. Yes, it's interesting to note, as Zach does here, that Bilbo does not enjoy killing the spiders. Yes, he does because it is necessary, but it is not something that, that seems to give him any kind of, of specific joy. He rescues his friends, and that is a far greater accomplishment for him. Yes. Good, good. Uh, Robert says, Tolkien didn't draw the connection between talking animals and the ring, but it doesn't seem impossible. Mm, yes. Like Alistair said, he continues, it's not present in Lord of the Rings at all. This is 
one of the sticking points with The Hobbit, I must admit. The, the, the question of talking animals. Do the animals really talk? Is this poetic license from Bilbo? Or is this, I guess, a, a prose license from Bilbo? Is this adaptation to serve the story? Is he trying to encapsulate some element of his experience, which can best be encapsulated by attributing these, these animals with the gift of, of speech? There's just so much to, to delve into there. It doesn't help that talking animals in general are now fairly uh, fairly ridiculous. They they have a Disney sensibility to them. It's tough. Yes. Yeah. Good. Good. Excellent. Okay. Um, we really must push on. I, I wanted to spend a little, but we must. Is it the outside narrative voice, says Bryce? You know, it could be. It could be an intrusion of that fairly Victorian uh, voice. This is the the narrative voice that we've discussed before, which is, I mean, in effect, the voice of Tolkien as the adapter of this story, but it is not Tolkien's voice as the author of this novel. It is almost... <laughs> I hadn't thought of this before, but but it's, it's almost the narrative voice of C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's almost that narrative tone. There is a sense of of a kind of, of wounded and fragile Victoriana here. Um, I, I consider that the narrator, Tolkien's narrator, but not Tolkien himself. Yeah. It's entirely possible that that is the intrusion. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's, uh, I just realized that I left that slide up for forever, but you know what? Let's just push on to the next one because we have other things to discuss. This is the moment in the aftermath of the rescue, in the aftermath of, of Bilbo's remarkable heroism. This is the moment where he confesses the truth to the other dwarves. There they lay for some time, puffing and panting, but very soon they began to ask questions. They had to have the whole vanishing business carefully explained, and the finding of the ring interested them so much that for a long while they forgot their own troubles. Balin, in particular, insisted on having the Gollum story, rills and all, told all over again with the ring in its proper place. But after a time the light began to fail, then other questions were asked. Where were they? And where was their path? And where was there any food? And what were they going to do next? These questions they asked over and over again, and it was from little Bilbo that they seemed to expect to get the answers, from which you can see that they had changed their opinion of Mr. Baggins very much, and had begun to have a great respect for him, as Gandalf had said they would. Indeed, they really expected him to think of some wonderful plan for helping them, and were not merely grumbling. They knew only too well that they would soon all have been dead if it had not been for the Hobbit and they thanked him many times. Some of them even got up and bowed right to the ground before him, though they fell over with the effort and could not get on their legs again for some time. Knowing the truth about the vanishing did not lessen their opinion of Bilbo at all, for they saw that he had some wits as well as luck and a magic ring, and all three are very useful possessions. In fact, they praised him so much that Bilbo began to feel there really was something of a bold adventurer about himself after all, though he would have felt a lot bolder still, if there had been anything to eat. There's a great deal to unpack here. Of course, this is the first point at which Bilbo's story of the discovery of the ring is revised. Here we get the Bilbo finds the ring version 2.0. Well, actually, the story that I told you about Gollum was maybe mostly true, but here's what actually happened. And I didn't really necessarily mention the ring. I didn't really necessarily mention that the ring can make me invisible, but okay, I'll tell you the story. 
that story, as we discussed back in chapter five, will be revised again and again as we go forward. Errol the Young asks in the YouTube chat, Bilbo wasn't feeling bold before this? Well, he sure seems to have been feeling bold, doesn't he? I wonder to what degree we're talking about a fundamental shift in Bilbo's nature, whether he is ready now to be more heroic than he was before, or if this is simply a rejuvenation. Is he restored by this acclaim from his fellows? Is he ready now to get back on his feet, exhausted as he is, and ready to push on forward through the rest of Mirkwood, onward to the Lonely Mountain? Your mileage may vary. Your interpretation may be different than my own. Yes. We also get a hint here of that formal reintroduction, which we saw before back in chapter six. The dwarves hearing Bilbo's great story get to their feet and bow almost to the ground. And though it isn't stated outright, I think we can infer a certain amount of reintroduction here. We're going to get, I'm certain, Feely at your service, Keely at your service. We're going to get this formal reintroduction that speaks to our new appreciation for Bilbo's heroism, for his gallantry, for his valor, for his capability. All of that extraordinary, extraordinarily, extraordinarily, excuse me, powerful. Yeah. Good. What I do want to focus on, though, is the end there of that second paragraph. Knowing the truth about the vanishing did not lessen their opinion of Bilbo at all, for they saw that he had some wits as well as luck and a magic ring, and all three are very useful possessions. We are now crediting Bilbo with luck as a possession. This is no longer something that happens to Bilbo. It is something that Bilbo carries with him. It is something that Bilbo is capable of employing. That's a really powerful idea when we look back at the beginning of the book, because, of course, luck has been with Bilbo throughout. And we've credited that sometimes as evidence of eucatastrophe. We've talked sometimes about the power of luck, sometimes about the power of prophecy. But here we're really crediting Bilbo himself as, as the source of that luck. Bilbo has some wits. That's a thing that he possesses. A magic ring. That's a thing that he possesses. And luck. That's a thing that he possesses. Does this change our understanding of how luck operates within this world? Does it change our understanding of fortune and misfortune of how we have ended up in this singular time and place right here amidst the dark boughs of Mirkwood? Possibly. Possibly. It certainly seems to be the case that luck is not under Bilbo's conscious control, that we can credit him with its possession. He doesn't seem to be able to wield it or to, to put it to specific use. Certainly, had Bilbo been possessed with a luck that he can employ reliably, he probably wouldn't have ended up separated from the dwarves beneath the Misty Mountains. He probably wouldn't have ended up at the height of a pine tree suddenly on fire. These seem like manifestations of luck, ultimately, like manifestations of grace, if we're going the eucatastrophic route here, but not specifically of Bilbo's luck. So why is it then that the dwarves see him this way? Why do they credit him with this particular ability? Yeah. Um, let's see here. Yes, yes. Uh, Tamara says, whoever brought up luck as a hobbit thing has changed the entire reading of this for me. Good, good. Yeah. 
Uh, and Emmy asks, is this emphasis on hunger something more than just what it appears to be at the, serv- uh, at the service? Is this forest slowly killing them in more ways than one and they need to get through it before they die? Um, is the forest magically killing them? No, probably not, at least not to my reading. Is the forest killing them because it has been corrupted and cannot provide sustenance for them? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We're seeing here, and again, it depends. Is this, a, is this a, a quality of fairy or is this a quality of the corrupted Mirkwood? Is this a thing that the dwarves would have experienced on Mirkwood's best day? Or is this a function of the necromancer's malign influence to the south? Either is, is arguably true. I think there's defense for both. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Um, yes. And Danny says, everyone's opinion of Bilbo's wits will change from some to immeasurable when we see what he does with the Arkenstone. Yes, looking ahead there to the very end of the book. Good, good. And, and Zach is pulling out the, uh, the distinction between the great and, and little, that, 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 that great powers are inevitably corrupted by, in part, their greatness. If you are exceptional, then you are going to falter and you are going to fall. And that is as sure as as any other universal truth within the world of Tolkien. But if you are small and if you are possessed of, of modest capability and modest courage and and know your place in the world, if you are comfortable there, if you do not aspire, if you are not ambitious, if you do not seek more power than you already possess, then you can accomplish genuinely great things. Yeah. Great. Good. Let's push on then, because it is at this point that we suddenly realize one of our dwarves is missing. Thorin has been taken, was taken during the intrusion into the elvish feast there that we discussed a few minutes ago this is our account of what happened to him and note the narrative shift here because for a second for a few pages i guess we leave bilbo behind completely the feasting people were wood elves of course these are not wicked folk if they had a fault it is a distrust of strangers though their magic was strong even in those days they were wary They differed from the high elves of the West and were more dangerous and less wise. For most of them, together with their scattered relations in the hills and mountains, were descended from the ancient tribes that never went to fairy in the West. There the light elves and the deep elves and the sea elves went and lived for ages and grew fairer and wiser and more learned and invented their magic and their cunning craft in the making of beautiful and marvelous things before some came back into the wide world. In the wide world, the wood elves lingered in the twilight of our sun and moon, but loved best the stars. And they wandered in the great forests that grew tall in lands that are now lost. They dwelt most often by the edges of the woods, from which they could escape at times to hunt or to ride and run over the open lands by moonlight or starlight. And after the coming of man, they took ever more and more to the gloaming and the dusk. Still, elves they were and remain, And that is good people. I'll note for those listening on the podcast, good people there, capital G, capital P, elves are good people. 
We should note here for those of you who are, yes, and Lauren is already calling this out. So this is the pre-named Valinor. Yes, uh, this is a direct reference to something that would only be fully explored after Tolkien's death in the pages of the Silmarillion. We don't know until that point exactly what it is that, that distinguishes the Kalaquendi from the Moraquendi, the light elves from the dark elves. The light elves have gazed upon the light of Valinor. That is this, this mythical kingdom. Mythical, it actually exists, of course, so it's not mythical, but it is mythical in the sense that myths are told of it. This legendary kingdom might be better in the West. When we go into the West in Tolkien's sub-creation, we are going to Valinor. The elves who have gazed upon the lights of Valinor are the Kalaquendi, the light elves, the light folk, if you like. The Moraquendi are those elves which have never gazed upon the light of Valinor. They have never visited fairy in the West. They are the dark elves, the dark folk. Though, for those of you who are perhaps a little more familiar with Dungeons and Dragons than you are with Tolkien's own world building, they are elves of the darkness rather than elves which are themselves dark, if that makes any kind of sense. Yes, good, good. Um, yes. <laughs> Tolkien could have mentioned Helcaraxa right then, says Zach. Completely agree, yes, yes. We'll, we'll definitely read that, yes. Good. Gloaming, says Robert, one of my favorite words. Yes, lovely, lovely. Oh, and Errol calls out the distinction here. The Vanyar are the light elves, the Noldor are the deep elves, the Teleri are the sea elves, and Fairy in the West is Amon. Yes, if we're being technically, technically correct. Yes, good, good. And Lauren clarifies too, yes, Dark Elf does not mean evil in Tolkien. Yes, certainly not evil. The worst that we can say about these elves is that they are more dangerous and less wise. And hey, what does that sound like? They are wood elves, but hey, they might as well be wild elves. And that, I think, is explicit thanks to the reference to the High Elves of the West. Even here, Tolkien is drawing this stark distinction, this, this, this functional juxtaposition between the West and the Wild. Sure, we, we went to Rivendell and we met elves, and maybe we don't know what they smell like, but Bilbo was certainly appreciative of the smell of elves. By the time we get here, though, these are not like Elrond's people. These are different. These are wild elves in that sense. Good. Good. Okay. Um, I really am running late, and I absolutely must end by 10. So uh, let's move on to the next slide here, where we have Thorin being interviewed by, by Thranduil, who is not named within this book, by, by the elf king. The king looked sternly on Thorin, but when he was brought before... Well, excuse me. The king looked sternly on Thorin when he was brought before him and asked him many questions, but Thorin would only say that he was starving. Why did you and your folk three times try to attack my people at their merrymaking? Asked the king. We did not attack them, answered Thorin. We came to beg because we were starving. Where are your friends now, and what are they doing? I don't know, but I expect starving in the forest. What were you doing in the forest? Looking for food and drink, because we were starving. And what brought you into the forest at all? asked the king angrily. At that, Thorin shut his mouth and would not say another word. Very well, said the king. Take him away and keep him safe until he feels inclined to tell the truth, even if he waits a hundred years. 
This is our introduction to Thranduil. What's most interesting, I think, about this section, it's delightfully written. I really love the exchange between Thorin and Thranduil, but I should stop calling him Thranduil. I should start calling him the Elf King. Um, what's really interesting about this conversation between Thorin and the Elf King, though, is not necessarily the content. I rather like Thorin's stubborn refusal to give up anything except the, the status of his men as starving. That works really rather well. But what's more interesting here is that we are in an entirely different narrative mode. And I want to look at the last slide here. This is the last paragraph of this entire reading. This is the last paragraph of the chapter. And I want to focus on, on what this means for our narrative perspective on these events. There in the king's dungeon, poor Thorin lay. And after he had got over his thankfulness for bread and meat and water, he began to wonder what had become of his unfortunate friends. It was not very long before he discovered, but that belongs to the next chapter and the beginning of another adventure in which the Hobbit again showed his usefulness. But that belongs to the next chapter is perhaps the most explicit reference that we have had within this book to the fact that we are reading a book. This chapter break is unlike any other chapter break that we have in all of Tolkien's work. It directly foreshadows the page turn. It directly foreshadows the chapter break, which is a powerful idea. It is a little, a little self-aware. And we must question why that is the case. And, of course, question who wrote this particular transition. It is very tempting, I think, to look at this, the beginning of another adventure in which the Hobbit once again showed his usefulness. Bilbo? Did you write that transition? Is that what you did? This is narratively intrusive, though. We are framing this particular account because Bilbo is not present for the conversation between Thorin and the elf king. He must have had this reported to him later, or hmm, what seems almost more plausible, made it up out of whole cloth. I, I, I wonder how exactly this part of the story made it down to Bilbo's account. Or perhaps it was introduced by a much later adapter of this original story, someone who felt that, you know, the narrative's a little dissatisfying at this point. Thorin just disappears. We don't really get a chance for him to grandstand. Someday someone's going to have to have some lines for Richard Armitage to stay in a movie adaptation, and we just don't have them. Maybe I can write a scene. Maybe I can break from the narrative convention that we only follow Bilbo. Even when Bilbo recedes into the background, we generally follow Bilbo. Here, we can just draw a sharp break. We can do something a little different. It'll be really great. It'll be really fun. I can just write this thing. It is possible, but it is no coincidence that we deviate from narrative convention within this frame and simultaneously highlight the nature of this story as a text. We do both of these things to to draw the reader into the story as a story, to remind us that we are being that we are being told a tale here, I think. Yeah. Um, let me see here. <laughs> Princess Ostrich says, you won't believe how useful Bilbo is in the next chapter. <laughs> I love the idea of, of clickbait Hobbit. Yeah, someone can definitely go through and just rename every chapter, if you could, with, with some BuzzFeed clickbait headline. That's, that's pretty great. I like that a lot. Good. Um, 
Yes, Emmy says, is this the first time we have a very separate story from what's happening with Bilbo, our main character? I can't remember. Yes, it is. This is the first time that we completely break from the bounds of Bilbo's experience. We've had moments where Bilbo is present, but we are not necessarily in his POV. We have moments where he all but recedes into the background. We had a moment earlier in this chapter where he passed out for a while and we got an account of his discovery, but he was still present. In this instance, though, he's not present. He's not mentioned. He's not referenced. He has no way of knowing what transpired here. Though ultimately, of course, he will venture too into the halls of the Elven King. Good. <laughs> Clickbait Hobbit Edition, says the Ocean Palace. Good. Good, good. All right, let's uh, wrap up there. Let me show you this slide. I'm going to be done by 10. This is fantastic. Only 25% more seminar than you were promised. Let's see. The next session is The Hobbit Chapter 9, Barrels Out of Bond. That will take place at 9 p.m. Eastern next Thursday, March the 9th, 2017. I know that the last two weeks we have missed our Thursday, uh, our, our regular Thursday slots. I really want to get back to those Thursday slots, but... Hopefully it will work out this week. I'm not anticipating any more technical trouble or technical impediment, but of course these things always happen when you don't expect it. Yes. Yes. Uh, Rebecca says, this chapter makes me feel like we will never leave the forest, especially because we're not out by the end of the chapter this time. That is a really great observation, Rebecca. I think that generally speaking, our adventures have been somewhat episodic previously. And arguably this is an episodic adventure too, that we have transitioned from Mirkwood into the realm of the Alvin King, but these two things feel contiguous. These two things feel perhaps more closely tied than any two spaces that we have inhabited in adjacent chapters previously. I think that's a really astute observation and does lend itself, I think, to that oppressive, unceasing, endless sense of, of Mirkwood. Yes, good. Wildfire says, can we stick to the Friday schedule? I'm sorry. I, I wish that I could. Friday is a tough night for a lot of people. I know Thursday is a tough night for a lot of people. We're going to continue to move it around, though, for what that's worth. We will do more Friday sessions, and we will do some Sunday sessions, too. And I want to do at least a couple of early morning sessions to allow for those people who live in, in wildly different time zones. I'm thinking in particular, of course, of our Australian contingent. Excellent. Yes, yes. Good. Thirteen dwarves and one hobbit careened down the river in barrels. They didn't expect what happened next. I could honestly just spend an hour reading out these headlines in that voice. That's pretty good. Yeah. Wonderful. Guys, thank you all so, so much for joining me. I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. I appreciate, of course, your kindness and your support. Stay tuned to StoryWonk over the course of the next week or so, I guess. Yes, maybe maybe a little more than a week we will have announcements. I will, of course, also be announcing the American Gods series. I have, in fact, let me deftly reach across here to show you this gorgeous version of American Gods. This is going to be the actual book that I use uh, through the seminar series. This is the pulp-covered uh, ex extended edition. This is the 10th anniversary edition with all of the extra content and the extra author's note and all of that stuff. We will be covering the extended edition, the, the, uh, the 10th anniversary edition. That's the best copy of the text to get. If you don't have that, don't worry that much about it. There may be a few slides that you don't recognize, but I'm going to try to frame the discussion of American Gods in part as a reflection on the 10th anniversary edition on, on, the, the transformation 
that, that Gaiman underwent in those 10 years and how, looking back at his own text, he managed to achieve a level of intertextuality and a level of, hmm, a level of, of kind of, of internal adaptation of which Tolkien, I think, would have been proud. I think Tolkien would have looked very, very, pos uh, very positively upon that. Good. Gene says, yes, American Gods, I used my signed Neil Gaiman copy, Flip's Hair, not Humblebrag. That is awesome. Robert says, I have it uncracked on my desk right here, American Gods, for the win. The Ocean Palace says, good cover. Aren't these amazing covers? I think the entire Neil Gaiman series has this fantastic pulpy, uh, pulpy aesthetic applied to them now. They're just gorgeous. So uh, we're going to have a lot to say. And yes, those of you keeping track will have noticed that the American Gods seminar will now almost certainly crash into the American Gods TV show. It's very likely we're going to be talking a little about the TV show too, you guys. Stay tuned for more announcements in that regard. If you don't follow me on Twitter, you probably should. That is at Paper Bullets. If Twitter isn't your thing, then you can head on over to storywonk.com and subscribe to the newsletter there. I will send out the newsletter every time there are significant announcements which there will be within the next week and a half or so. Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight as it is every week. Get in touch with me after the fact. You can email me at alistair at storywonk.com. That's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R at storywonk.com or use the hashtag SW again over on Twitter and I will see that. Or of course, stop by the Storywonk forum, forum.storywonk.com. You are all wonderful. You are all fantastic. You are all the most valiant of hobbits, the most noble of dwarves, the most bedecked in leaves and finery of elves. Can't wait to talk to you all next week for Barrels Out of Bond. Until then, take care. <laughs>